Well, as we come to God's word this morning, turn with me, if you would, to John, Gospel of John, chapter 7. Now, the last time that we were in John's Gospel, we finished up chapter 2. For those who haven't been here for the last several years, as I have slowly been making my way through this book, it may seem strange that we're going from John 2 to John 7. That's because when I started years ago, I started... For a variety of reasons, I started in John chapter 3, and we worked our way from 3 through 6. I thought it'd probably be a good idea, good idea to go back and do 1 and 2, which we've done. And so now we, this morning, find ourselves at John chapter 7. Now, one thing that I have never gotten into, but I know that many people have and many people do, and there's probably many people or people in here who are into it, is building puzzles. I've talked with families before where they will all work together over a long period of time on a single puzzle. I found an article from April of last year, so right in the initial responses to the pandemic and to COVID, and, and the Kodak company came out with a new puzzle. And at that time, they came up with a puzzle to help give people, for those who like puzzles, something to do since we were all told to stay in our homes. Now, this puzzle features 28 landmarks from around the world, The pictures are taken by professional photographers. Now, the kicker is, it is a 51,300-piece puzzle that, when completed, is a whopping 28.5 feet wide and 6 feet tall. Now, that is an enormous puzzle. And to be honest, for someone like me, that is really, really not appealing at all. Now, my problem is I have a hard time focusing. I have to put in a lot of effort to stay focused on one particular thing, But there is an appeal to the idea of the image of a puzzle being slowly revealed over time, piece by piece, until that moment, which I'm sure is an exciting moment for those who do puzzles, and that moment where you put the last piece on the puzzle and you get to see the whole picture in all its detail and in all its glory. And that is a picture of what John is doing for us in this gospel. He is putting a puzzle together piece by piece. And each piece of that puzzle is leading toward a clear and full picture of Jesus. Each piece of this puzzle is being built up until we put the last piece of the puzzle in place and there we should more fully see Christ. A clear picture of him. A clear picture of what he's done and what our response should be to him. So as we come to the text this morning, that's what we're doing. We're putting a few more pieces of the puzzle in place as John continues, or sorry, as Jesus continues to reveal himself. And to help set these pieces this morning in the proper context, it's, it's set against the background of a growing hostility towards Christ and a continuing confusion, a growing confusion among the people about who is he? What, what is Jesus' real identity? Starting back in John 5, Jewish leaders, at, at this point, they've, they've wanted, they want to kill Jesus because he healed someone on the Sabbath, and he claimed that he was equal with God. And, and then in John 6, where we have this massive feeding of the 5,000, well, the day after that, they, the crowds go looking for him, and, and they want him to do more miracles. They want him to feed him. But by the end of Jesus' discussion with them, the majority of them leave Christ. They abandon him in that moment because Jesus makes it really clear to follow him. You have to be totally devoted to him 
And he uses expression like eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And even after the miracle they've seen, they still doubt who Jesus claims to be, and they ask Jesus to show himself even more. And then against that context, then we come to John chapter 7. And, and in this chapter, there is this continuing both hostility towards Christ by the Jewish religious leaders and confusion about him. John chapter 7, verse 12, just know, says, And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he's a good man, others said, No, he's leading the people astray. So they're confused. And, and there are some in the crowd who ask in verse 31, when the, but, but at the same time, when the Christ appears, will he do more? Could he possibly do more than what we're seeing this man do? So it's against that backdrop of both hostility and confusion, Jesus continues to reveal himself, and he continues to heap upon them evidence upon evidence, and it's some of that evidence, then, that we are going to look at this morning. Now, at the end of John chapter 6, to help us place this in the timeline, we said this was the day after the feeding of the 5,000 in John chapter 6, and after the majority of the crowd leaves because of what Jesus says, the, d- the 12 disciples, so they stay. And Jesus asked them, do you want to leave too? And we have this wonderful statement by Peter in John 6, verses 68 and 69. Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And then immediately following that, in John chapter 7, verse 1, it says, After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Well, this verse seems simple enough, but contained in it are actually many events in Jesus' life. Understand, John purposely wrote his gospel to mostly focus on different aspects of Jesus' life from the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which are called the synoptic gospels, because those gospels were already, already in circulation at the time that John sits down to write his. So he purposely focused on specific events, He skips over a lot of material that the other synoptic gospels covered. And that's what's going on in verse 1. So the question is, what parts of Jesus' life are contained in this statement? John simply writes, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. Well, I'm going to run through just kind of a summary. Uh, Some of these things hopefully will be familiar as far as we know that have gone on in Jesus' life. So you can just get an idea of all that is contained in that verse as Jesus continues to do ministry in Galilee. It's during that time that he has a confrontation with the Pharisees and they are accusing his disciples of not washing their hands ceremonially and they get in this discussion. Jesus heals the daughter of a Syrophoenician woman. He heals a mute man and there's actually another feeding that occurs. It's called the feeding of the 4,000. He actually feeds another massive crowd during this time. The, The Pharisees and the Sadducees or the religious leaders come and they confront Jesus and they ask for a sign and Jesus heals a blind man and, and it's in during this time that Peter makes that really that 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 proclamation that Jesus is the Messiah and Jesus says, Yes, and on this I will build my church, this rock, I will build my church. That happens during this time. It's also during this time that Jesus tells his disciples about his death, burial, and resurrection, and Peter comes and actually confronts and tries to rebuke Christ. The Mount of Transfiguration occurs. The, then when he comes down and he heals the demoniac boy, and then, then just there's other instances of 
his ministry as he's going about this region of Galilee. And all this to say that by the time we get to John 7, verse 2, Jesus has done a lot. He has gone throughout Galilee. He's been preaching. He's been teaching. He's been performing unbelievable miracles. And as that's happening, people, like I said, they're getting confused. Like they don't know who is this guy. Is he really the Christ or, he's, or is he not? And already the, the Jewish religious leaders, how much their hatred and their hostility and their desire to kill Christ continues to grow. I mean, we saw that uh, back in John chapter 5. And in John chapter 5, verse 18, uh, that's back when he kills, a, or sorry, Jesus heals a man by the pool of Bethesda. And the religious leaders confront him, and Jesus makes these statements. And then we have this in verse 18. It says, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. They viewed Jesus' actions, and they viewed his words as blasphemy, and they wanted to kill him. So that's why he stays. It says here he stays away from Judea during this time. And he stays in the region of Galilee, traveling, preaching, teaching, healing many people and performing signs and wonders and miracles. And so it's in that context and all that that's contained in John 7 verse 1 that we come to John 7 verses 2 through 9. And we read, Now the Jews' feast of the booze was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. Well, Jerusalem, which is located in Judea, just to understand and remind it, it's the center of life for the Jews. Their, their religious life revolved around Jerusalem because that was the location of the temple. And there were certain times in the year that would draw particularly large crowds to the temple in Jerusalem. And one of those got to communicate in the Old Testament, there was a certain feast that annually they they were to observe. And one of those was the Feast of Tabernacles, otherwise known as the Feast of Booths. So to help us just understand, what is this feast? What is going on at this time? So uh, the clearest description of that that we get is in Leviticus 23. So I'm going to read a few verses from Leviticus 23 just so we can have this feast that is coming up in our mind. Um, Leviticus 23. And I'm going to read verses 33 through 36, and then 39 through 44. So Leviticus 23, starting verse 33. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, On the fifteenth of this seventh month, and for seven days is the feast of booths to the Lord. On the first day shall be a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. For seven days you shall present food offerings to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall hold a holy convocation and present a food offering to the Lord. It is a solemn assembly. You shall not do any ordinary work. 
And then in verse 39, on the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the produce of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord seven days. On the first day shall be a solemn rest, and on the eighth day shall be a solemn rest. And you shall take on the first day the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees and boughs of leafy trees and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. You shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It is a statute forever throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Thus Moses declared to the people of Israel the appointed feasts of the Lord. So we have this feast of booze. This feast was to be this seven-day celebration. It starts on the Sabbath, and they celebrate for seven days, and it ends the following Sabbath. And during that time, they were to dwell in booths made from branches and palms of trees. And this feast then was meant to remind them of how the people of Israel lived in booths during their time following the exodus of, from Egypt. It was also to remind them of God's provision. Notice that they were to bring the produce of the land throughout this feast as an offering to God. And actually in Deuteronomy 16, uh, we see he actually equates the Feast of Booths with another term, the Feast of Ingathering, which is this time when the produce of the land and wine were harvested. Once again, it was to remind people of God's provision. Now, we'll talk about this feast more in detail, at least certain aspects of it in a future sermon, because it's going to play into the timing of some of what Jesus says as this narrative continues. But back in our narrative of John 7, Jesus' brothers then are going to this feast, this feast of booze, this feast of tabernacles. They're going to celebrate that in Jerusalem, and they tell Jesus in verses 3 through 4, leave here and go go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Well, Jesus' half-brothers tell him then, go to the feast. And don't just go to the feast. Go with lots of pomp and fanfare, right? Go publicly. And the question is, what's the motivation? What is their motivation for this advice to Jesus? Well, John tells us in verse 5, he says, For not even his brothers believed in him. Their motivation then for this advice, it wasn't love, it wasn't care or concern for his ministry. It was sourced then in an unbelief about Jesus, both what he was saying and what he was doing. In essence, then, they're telling Jesus that if you really are who you say you are, then go to the central, most important location in the life of the Jews and present yourself publicly. Do it publicly. Well, how does Jesus respond to his brothers? Well, he tells them in verses 6 through 8, he says, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. So to help us understand, like, what is Jesus really communicating to his brothers here? What does he mean when he says, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. Well, most of the time, most of the time in John's gospel, when, when, it, when Jesus says, my time has not yet come, it is usually referring to Jesus' glorification through his death and through his resurrection. That's usually what Jesus means. 
However, when Jesus means that, there is a particular specific word in Greek that is used for time. Here, however, it's a different word when he says, my time has not yet come. And this particular word is used in John's gospel only here in verse 6 and in verse 8. And in these verses, they all center around this decision of going up to this feast at this particular time. Therefore, Jesus is not referring to his future death on the cross, but instead to his going up to Jerusalem for the Feast of the Tabernacles at the time his brothers are telling him to. And Jesus is saying that the time for his going up to Jerusalem for this feast is not yet at hand. It isn't time yet. Verses 10 through 13 actually help us to understand that as well, that that's what Jesus means. To read John 7, verses 10 through 13, So after Jesus tells his brothers this, and we read in verse 10, But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast, and they're saying, Where is he? There was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he's a good man, others said, No, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Well, we see that Jesus did go to the feast, just not when his brothers told him to. So what then is the point? Well, Jesus is making a very clear point. He is on a mission. Jesus is on a particular divine timeline. He is not concerned with what others think he should do, when he should do it, or how he should do it. He is on a mission, and that mission is going to be in obedience to the Father. Now, there's no, this is nothing new. Jesus had actually made, already made this clear back in John 5 when he describes his relationship to the Father. Jesus makes the following statement. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, this is back in John 5, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. And that was John 5:19. And in John 5:30, he says, And again, I can do nothing on my own. Jesus was on mission for the Father. He was on a specific timeline, and nothing and no one could deter him from that divine timeline. That is why he tells his brothers in verses 6 through 8 that their time is always here. Since his brothers did not believe in him, they were of the world and were not concerned with God's plan. They could go to the feast anytime they wanted, whereas Jesus was going to go when the Father wanted him to go. The world didn't hate his brothers because they were of the world, but the world hated Jesus because he was exposing their sinfulness. By his words, by his actions, just by his very presence, he's openly condemning the evil works of those who choose not to believe in him. So as Jesus had already shown through his Galilean ministry, his message was an offense to his people. His brothers could not understand that. They couldn't understand that because they were blind to the truth of Christ. So the first piece of the puzzle then for us this morning that we're being shown about Christ is that Jesus' timeline is the Father's timeline. Jesus was on a divine timeline and he would go when it was time to go and in the way he was supposed to do it. Jesus' timeline is the Father's timeline. Well, Jesus has made such a stir among the people, they're confused. Like we said, they're confused about his identity. There was really no consensus among them. 
the crowds and they're coming to this feast in Jerusalem and they're actually expecting Jesus to come. They're looking for him, but they can't find him because he's gone privately instead of publicly to the feast. He goes to the feast in the Father's timing and in the Father's way he goes privately without fanfare and recognition. That would come later in his triumphal entry. but That time was not now. And he spends the first part of the feast not making himself known publicly. And then we have this transition point in in verse 14 when it says about the middle of the feast. So then around the middle of the feast, he goes into the temple and he begins to teach. And then we have here John 7 verses 14 through 18. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood so as jesus is teaching the people they can't understand they can't understand how can he speak with such knowledge how can he speak with such authority really the only formal theological education that jesus would have received growing up was the same as any other jewish boy that grew up in the synagogue he wasn't like paul who had learned at the feet of one of the greatest jewish religious teachers at the time He hadn't studied in a particular school of study religiously or under a particular rabbi. How could he possibly know what he knows and be able to communicate it the way that he does? Well, Jesus tells him in verse 16, he says, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Not only is Jesus timing the Father's timing, but Jesus' words are the Father's words. That is what Jesus is communicating. He's clearly communicating that his words are in perfect alignment with the one who has sent him, which is God himself. And the people recognize that Jesus didn't speak like the other rabbis. Other rabbis, when making statements, they would quote things and they would support it with lots of scholarly support as they quoted things. But that's not the way that Jesus did it. When when he made a statement... He made it without a long list of sources to support his statements. When Jesus spoke, he spoke with authority. And just like the verse that I read at the be- verses I read at the beginning uh, of the service this morning, Matthew seven, even in verses twenty-eight through twenty-nine, he says, "When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished. They were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes." So to be clear in this statement, Jesus is equating his words with God's words. His words with God's words. And this is a bold statement. He is claiming that when he speaks, what comes out of his mouth are words as coming directly from God himself. We may be wondering this morning, just as the crowd did at that time, he said, well, how can I know that? How can I know that Jesus' words are the very words of God? How can I know that it is God speaking to me when Christ is speaking? How can I know that? 
Well, Jesus answers that in verses 17 and 18. He says, if, anyone, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. So what does Jesus mean when he says that those who desire, whose will it is to do God's will, will understand that Jesus' words are God's words with the full authority of God himself? Well, to answer that question, I would simply ask you, who can truly desire to obey God? That is what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about obedience to God. And the answer is quite simple. Only those who have been saved by God truly have a desire to obey him. Or to put another way, obedience to God is a fruit of genuine salvation. Now John makes that clear throughout this gospel. And he makes it abundantly clear in, in his other writings, even in 1 John. So if Jesus' words are God's words, they carry with them the authority of God himself. And so then the question is, what should my response be? Or what should your response be to that authority? And the response should be one of obedience. And to make the, the overwhelming testament of Scripture clear on this, I'm going to read a series of verses. And the series of verses can make it clear that the fruit of obedience to Jesus' authority is made clear. Fruit of salvation to Jesus' authority in obedience. Now, I'm not going to give you time to turn to all of them, so I'm going to go through these somewhat quickly. If you want to write down the references and look at them later, please do. But I just want you to get this overwhelming sense of this connection between obedience to God and salvation. In John 8:31 says, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. In John 10, 27, he says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. In John 14, 15, Jesus says, If you love me, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Jesus says in John 14, 21, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Jesus says in John 15, 14, You are my friends if you do what I command you. And Jesus in John 18, 37, speaking to Pilate, says, Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And then in 1 John, John, even after having been taught and lived by, with Christ, he writes this in 1 John chapter 2, verses 3-6. through 6, He says, And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is, is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. John says in 1 John three twenty four, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, in God, in him. And lastly, in 1 John 5, 2 and 3, he says, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. But then John is making abundantly clear 
as he's quoting Christ and as he's writing his own epistles through all this writing is that obedience to God then is always, always a fruit of salvation. Not perfect obedience. None of us is perfect this side of glory. But if you are saved, then one result or one outworking of salvation will be a growing obedience and a growing desire to obey God. So the one who desires to do God's will or the one whose will is to do God's will is the one who has been saved. This is the person who has responded to the authority of Christ with humble repentance from their sins and faith in Jesus. It also means that the ability to understand that Jesus' words are the very words of God is a result of the Holy Spirit at work in us. We can't get there on our own. We can't get there on our own intellect. There is no hope in ourselves, but there is hope in the gospel. There is hope in Christ. Jesus makes that even clearer back in John 7. He makes that clear in what we've been saying, that, that his authority His authority, if he's speaking the words of the Father himself, then his authority is that of the Father. And he tells the crowds that the person who speaks on his own authority is seeking his own glory. This is the general truth there. There is pride wrapped up in those who speak as their own man or as their own woman. In other words, people, us, when we tend to speak this way, we're after our own recognition, That, however, is not what Jesus is about. He is not in it for himself. He is in it for the Father. He desires for the Father to be glorified. He speaks with the authority of the Father because he speaks the words of the Father. And this is really important because it means, as we have been saying, that Jesus' words are God's words. Jesus' words have the same authority as the words of God because they are the words of God. That means to obey the words of Christ is to obey God. To disobey the words of Christ then is to disobey God. You cannot separate the two from each other. And this is so important for us to understand as believers, as Christians, we cannot separate love for God from obedience to God. As quoted earlier, Jesus makes it clear that love for God and obedience to God are tightly bound together. Our obedience to God should be an outflow or an overflow of our love for him. We obey God. We obey the words of Christ because we are so overwhelmed by him and his love for us. When we think about God and we think about Christ and we think about all that he has done for us, how could we respond in any other way to the love of God for us on display through Christ but by a hunger and by a desire to obey him? We like to separate those two or we're good at justifying that in our own lives. We like to think that we can love God, that we can love Christ and live in disobedience to him. That we can live our lives however we want and still claim a love for God, and it just isn't true. In those moments where we choose to disobey God, so to be clear, in those moments when I, Darren, choose to willfully disobey God, I am putting on display in that moment that I actually don't love God at all in that moment. I'm only loving myself. So because Jesus' words are the Father's words, they are spoken with the authority of God. To obey Christ's words is to obey God. To disobey Christ's words is to disobey God. And a growing obedience to Christ is a fruit of salvation. 
And it is that saving work in us that allows us to know that what Jesus is saying is true and divine and authoritative for our lives. That's the second piece of the puzzle for us this morning. Not only is Jesus' timeline, the Father's timeline, but Jesus' words are the Father's words. They are the words of God. Not the words of just a mere man. But not only is Jesus operating on the Father's divine timeline, not only are Jesus' words the Father's words, but his works are also the Father's works. We see that in John 7. I'm going to read verses 19 through 24. Has not Moses given you the law? That none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Jesus just told the crowd that only those who desire to do God's will can truly know that Jesus' words are God's words. It may be strange that Jesus follows that then with this statement of a mention of Moses. He tells the crowd that Moses gave them the law, which they don't keep, and they want to kill him. Well, the law is an expression of the will of God. God clearly communicates what he wants and doesn't want from his people through the law, and they don't obey the law. These people consistently break God's law, and by their disobedience and their lack of desire to truly obey God, they are demonstrating exactly what Jesus has just said. They are demonstrating why they cannot understand who Jesus is, why they cannot see, even though it's right in front of their faces, that Jesus is God, that he is on a divine timeline from the Father, and his words are the words of God. They cannot see it. And that's clear through, demonstrated through, their lack of obedience. They can't understand. And a fruit of that lack of understanding is the fact that they want to kill Jesus. What do they want to kill Jesus for? They want to kill Jesus because, as he says, he did one work. Well, what work is he referring to? I believe he's referring back to John chapter 5. He's referring back to the healing of the man on the Sabbath. They were so concerned with observing the minutia of how they interpreted the law, they're willing to even perform circumcision on someone on the Sabbath, but they cannot rejoice that in man's entire body was made well. And just as a reminder, back in John 5, we said he healed the man at the pool of Bethesda. Well, that man had been an invalid for 38 years. He couldn't walk. And Jesus comes, and with his words, he instantly, instantly, miraculously heals this man. And this man immediately gets up, he picks up his bed, and he walks away. Not even taking the time to learn the name of the man who just healed him. And what is the Jewish religious leader's response to this? They they can't believe that Jesus did it on the Sabbath, and they want him dead. 
They care nothing for this man who couldn't walk his entire life. They only care for what they perceive as honoring God through a wrongly understood interpretation of the law. They, could, they would circumcise someone on the Sabbath, but they cannot rejoice over what Jesus has just done for this man. And Jesus tells them they should judge rightly. Don't judge by externals only, but judge rightly. Understand what the law actually means. That may seem shocking to us this morning that anyone could respond this way to a man being healed. But what it demonstrates in a very visible way is the extent of our utter depravity. Apart from God's work in us, we cannot see Christ any any more clearly than these people in our narrative this morning. And instead of responding with anger and hatred towards Jesus for what he was doing for his works, for his signs and his wonders and his miracles, what his works should have and were meant to communicate to the crowd is that Jesus is from God, that Jesus is from the Father. Jesus actually said back in John 5, verse 36, he told them, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing Bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Jesus' works cooperate. Jesus' works support his message. His works are the proof, one proof, that he is from the Father because his works are the Father's works. The works that Jesus did were a clear sign that supported the reality of what he was saying. They go hand in hand. I think there's another scene in Jesus' life where he once again makes this abundantly clear. I'm not going to read through the whole passage again this morning, but Will read it during the scripture reading when he read about the healing of the paralytic. And in that narrative, the first thing that that Jesus does, they, they bring this man, they lower him down to Jesus, and obviously he's a paralytic, he wants to be healed, and Jesus looks at him and he tells him that his sins are forgiven. Your faith has made you well. His sins are forgiven. Well, the religious leaders that are standing around watching this think that what Jesus has said is blasphemy. How could Jesus possibly forgive someone's sins? Only God can forgive sin. And they were right. Only God can forgive sin. So Jesus imposes this interesting question. He asks them, because he knows what they're thinking, he can read their minds, and he says, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? Well, the answer to the question is, obvious it's actually easier to say your sins are forgiven than it is to say rise and walk why is that well because you can't visibly see if someone's sins are forgiven but if you say rise and walk very quickly it's going to be abundantly clear whether you are true or false because either that dude is going to get up and walk or is going to stay laying on the ground it's easily provable so jesus tells them and this is my paraphrased words So Jesus looks at them and says, to prove to you that I can forgive sins, therefore, that I am God. So to prove to you that I am God, and as God I have the authority to forgive sins, I'm going to heal this man right in front of your very eyes. And then he does it. He tells that man to get up and walk. And in front of everybody, he gets up and he walks. And that is one of the purposes of all these miracles that Jesus performs. He is trying to definitively connect himself with the Father, with God. What I'm saying is true, and my works support it. Only God can say this, and only God can truly heal somebody that way. 
Therefore, I am God. He was giving them overwhelming evidence, just as he is with us this morning, that his works are the Father's works. And that is the third piece of the puzzle he's putting together for us this morning. Not only is Jesus' timeline the Father's timeline, his words are the Father's words, and his works are the Father's works. All this painting a picture for us, piece of a puzzle to show us who Jesus is. There's one more piece for us this morning, and it's found in John 7, verses 25 through 36. So I'm going to read that. Verse, John 7, 25 through 36. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is, this, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? Well, the people notice Jesus is openly speaking these things. He hasn't been arrested. They question whether the leaders really know this is Messiah, that he is the Messiah, and then they make this interesting statement. In verse 27, they say, but we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Now, to be honest, I think it's on the surface that seems like an odd statement because these same people, in verse 42, by the time we get to chapter 7, verse 42, they say, Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So they knew the coming Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem. So how can they also say that when the Messiah comes, no one will know where he comes from? Well, there were those in Judaism at the time who believed that although the Messiah would be of flesh and blood, he would be wholly unknown until he appeared to redeem Israel. They thought the Messiah's public appearance would be sudden, it would be dramatic, and it would bring freedom to Israel. So then they look at Jesus and they see his public ministry, which has been going on for a while. He's been walking around, he's preaching, he's doing these amazing works, and yet physical redemption has not come. So how could he be the Messiah then? Or at least that, that is their reasoning. Yet they're confused because it, 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 it seems that his works, as they should be, point to the validity of what he's saying. They say, well, when the Christ appears, will he do more? Could he possibly do more than what this man is doing? So they're confused. And in the midst of this confusion, Jesus steps in and he speaks. And he lets them know they actually don't have a clue where he is really from. They may think they know his earthly origin, but they have no idea about his divine origin. Jesus tells them, you know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. 
Jesus tells them that although they may think they know him and where he comes from, he was actually sent from the Father. That is his ultimate origin. Not, not only did Jesus come from the Father, but he also tells them he's going to go back to the Father. He tells them in verse 33 and 34, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. They, of course, don't understand what Jesus is talking about. They think that maybe Jesus is talking about going to another part of the world. But we know, because we have the benefit of Scripture, we know that Jesus is referring to his future ascension back to the Father. He dies and he rises from the dead, and then he returns to the Father. So Jesus came from the Father, and he's going back to the Father. And that's the final piece of the puzzle for us this, this morning is that not only is Jesus' timeline the Father's timeline, His words are the Father's words, His works are the Father's works, He came, actually came from the Father, and He is going back to the Father. Well, what picture is this helping to paint for us this morning? Well, I love how John frames His gospel for us and in his prologue, he states, this is John 1.18, he says, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So at the beginning of this gospel account of Jesus' life, John tells us that Jesus makes the Father known to us. He then spends the rest of this gospel giving us pieces of this puzzle, evidence to the truth of this statement through Jesus' words, what he says, and what he does. And then, Near the end of his life, before his crucifixion on the cross, we have this recorded in John chapter 14. And in John chapter 14, verses 5 through 11. John 14, verses 5 through 11. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From, from now on you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? Do you not believe that I'm in the father and the father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. <clears throat> believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Jesus gently rebukes Philip and he says to him, if you have been paying attention, if you have been paying attention to me, then you have seen the Father. In other words, you have seen God. So what is this puzzle that is John is putting together for us? As, as John gives us a clear picture of Jesus and as he puts these pieces of the puzzle together as we continue to work through this gospel, he's actually revealing the Father to us. He's revealing God to us. When we see Jesus, we see God. Why can't the crowds in our narrative, why can't they understand what Jesus is saying? Why, why don't they get it? Why can't they see these puzzle pieces that are being put together? Well, Jesus had told them in verse 17, we looked at it, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he says, then they would understand. He also makes these statements to them that I think are hard statements. He, 
He tells him in verse 28, speaking of the Father, him, the Father, you, the crowds, do not know. He says you don't know him. And in verse 34, he says, where I, where I, Jesus, am, you cannot come. In later verses, when we get to chapter 8, he makes it even more explicitly clear to the crowd what their true spiritual condition is. This is why they cannot understand Christ. They cannot understand what he is talking about because they do not desire to do his will. And because of that, they don't know him. Therefore, although Jesus will return to the Father, that is a place these people cannot go. Well, if you are in this category this morning where you do not know God, I just ask you to feel the weight of the evidence of Jesus' claims. And under this weight, you should respond with repentance from your sins and faith in this Jesus, the Jesus who at every turn and in every way has demonstrated that He is God. He is equal with the Father. He says it this morning by demonstrating He is on the Father's timeline. His words are the Father's words. His works are the Father's works. He was sent by the Father and He's going back to the Father. And because of this, then Jesus has the authority of the Father. Jesus has the authority of God. And we should respond to this divine authority with humble submission and loving obedience. The response to this Jesus should be one of faith. As we have seen Jesus this morning, to be clear, we have seen the Father. As we have seen Jesus, we have seen God. For those who are saved, we do know God, and we will go to Christ one day. Jesus promised this to his followers. He tells them in John 14, verses 1 through 3, he says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself. And he says the very opposite of what he's just said to this crowd. He tells his disciples, where I am, you may be also. And this truth, this truth should fill our hearts with overwhelming joy. We should be filled with such love and such joy for our Savior. Our minds should be filled with the vision of this Christ. This Christ who came to fulfill God's Mission, the Father's mission, and He came to do it in His timing and in His way. In Christ's words are the words of God, and His works are the works of God, and He has come from God, and He is returning to Him. And when He goes, for those of us who know Him, He is preparing a place for us, so that where He is, we may go also. And the evidence of our growing love for this Jesus that we have seen in Scripture this morning, should be one of increasing obedience, loving obedience to Him, to His words that we have right here in Scripture. I would ask then this morning, can your life be characterized as one who desires to do God's will? Is that a description that others could say about you? Listen, this morning we are all presented, we are all shown the reality of Christ. I think it's so easy for us as believers, we get comfortable. 
We get comfortable with Jesus, so comfortable that we lose sight of his glory. We lose sight of his splendor. We lose sight of his majesty. We lose sight of his authority. We lose sight the authority of his words. And narratives like this this morning, they should remind us of the Jesus that we serve. We serve a big and glorious God. We serve Jesus who is in control of all the timeline. And it is going to happen the way he has prescribed it to happen. When it's going to happen. How it's going to happen to bring him maximum glory. And we see that lived out in Jesus' own life and the choices that he made. His words are the words of God. When we see Christ, we are hearing. When we read his words, we are hearing the words from God himself. When we see Jesus' works, we are seeing the overwhelming power and majesty of the creator of the universe. We are seeing one who has come from the Father, who humbled himself to come amongst people and to live this perfect life and to do amazing things which all pointed to the reality of who he is. And in response, he asks us to submit ourselves, to humbly come before him, this majestic God of the universe, and to repent and to trust in him and to respond to this love, this incredible, amazing love that he has put on display for us with a growing desire to obey him, to be ones that walk around and show people, be little Christ so people can see Jesus as we obey the words that he has given us to do. Is that how your life, is that how my life can be characterized? And that's what we're called to this morning. As we see the authority of Christ and we get a clear picture of who he is, he is calling you and he's calling me to respond in loving obedience, to be known as those who will to do God's will. And that's what I leave you with this morning. Do you will? Do you desire? Do you have an increasing desire to obey Jesus because you love him so much? Let us pray.